Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating and review. And better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. I've embarked on a journey to get to know amazingly awesome HR and business professionals. These conversations create the foundation for my book on what it takes to do HR Like a Boss. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Dyer. Chris is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, remote work leader and consultant, the CEO of People G2, an employment screening company, and the radio host of the Talent Talk radio show. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So it's pretty cool. We have a lot of things in common uh, other than where we live, you being in California, me being here in uh, Northeast Ohio was so awesome through these virtual platforms that we're able to get together. And I know you have You've written a book and are writing a book, so there's some commonality there. And we both have virtual companies. We started about eight to ten years ago, which is really pretty cool. And we have these little podcast things going. I guess mine's little. Yours is a little bit um, uh, more more popular and been around longer. So uh, tell tell those that don't know who you are that are listening in or watching a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you did a good job of of giving all the you know the the play by play there of my resume. You know, I think I'm just. Uh, like yourself, I'm someone who is fascinated by uh, how we manage talent, about how, what do really talented people do? I mean, I think I, I've spent a lifetime at conferences and networking events and, you know, picking the brains of people who I admire or I think are doing something really special, really smart, um, and also learning how to like turn out the noise, right? To learn how to not pay attention to people who don't know what they're talking about or don't, uh, you know, just have an opinion to have an opinion, don't really have one that is, you know, we should be listening to. So it's sort of been a journey for me to really learn all that stuff. And then somewhere along the way, I accumulated enough knowledge that then I just started repeating it back to people. And um, that turned out to, to, to work well. So I can help out companies and write books and, you know, talk, talk on podcasts and do things like that. But most importantly, try to create uh, every day the best place for my people to work uh, and to make sure my employees are motivated and that they're empowered. And honestly, they can do their jobs without having to, you know, knock on my uh, virtual office every day. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, that's no small feat. And certainly something when you start, I know I had so many people ask me, how in the world are you doing that? How are you, how are you having a business that's virtual? And then as it grow, grew and people got to know more about it, I think they became more fascinated. And I think to that point, the kind of interaction that most people are used to having around a brick and mortar, it seems so much easier, but in my opinion, it's way more efficient and effective to do it in a way that's virtual because you're, you're using your time wisely and then you're getting people that align to what, what works within your culture and your business. So congrats. Thank you. So cool. So, all right. So you talked about your book. So uh, two-fold two question as we get things kicked off. I know you wrote a book called The Power of Company Culture. So love to hear a little bit about that and that journey for you. And then I know you also said you're writing another book. So curious about yeah. that one as well. Yeah. So the, the first book, The Power of Company Culture, is really uh, that culmination of knowledge and things that I learned. Not what I figured out through all my research, uh, and it really began with uh, me wanting to change my company, realizing back in 2008, 2009, we were going to do things differently. And one of those things was to go remote. But I said, if, let's just, let's try to make this the best possible place we can to work. And so the, the question be, really came up is, well, what's the best place to work? What does that mean? 
right? What are these things that we need to be thinking about and doing? And what are the best companies doing consistently? And it became very obvious after reading hundreds of books and talking to thousands of leaders and, you know, and all the things that I had ingested over time, um, that there are some very specific truths. There are things, and I call them my, my pillars, are seven pillars of great company culture. And in any company, if they think about these seven things and they work on these seven things all the time, they will have a great culture, right? As long as they're, I guess, doing a good job with them, right? I mean, they can't just think about it, but they're doing great things inside these seven areas. And what's really cool about that is it's not a standard blueprint. It's not, you have to do things just like Google or just like Facebook or just like Amazon or, or pick anyone in your industry. You can interpret these things your own way, but it's that you're doing something intentional about these seven pillars that really, really makes uh, the biggest impact on companies. So in the first third of the book, I talk about what do you got to do? Like, what's the minimum, right? What do you got to do to at least like not suck uh, and be okay at company culture? Like, you know, what are the things people expect? What do you got to do? The middle of the book is what are these seven pillars, these great things that companies are doing? And now that you know that, the last third of the book is like, how do you actually do it? How do you actually get things done? How do you create change in the organization? And then I really peppered in a lot of the most, the best stories that I was getting on my podcast, you know, from everything from people from General Motors and Southwest Airlines and, or even just the small, you know, company down the street from me that that's doing an awesome job. So kind of mixed in a lot of stories. I know people like stories. Um, and so that's the, the, fir- the, the first book. And I am, like you said, just wrapping up a book on called Remote Work, pretty simple. And it's going to be how to have a remote company, whether you want to go remote or you are remote, like what are all the things you got to do to be remote? And I'm writing that with my, my mentor and co-author, uh, Kim Shepard, and she had a remote organization as well and sold that for a uh, top dollar recruiting company. And so her and I are sort of giving everyone all of our best stuff on everything that we do and we think are as important for remote. So having written the first book and now having a co-author, can you compare the experiences? Is there one easier, one harder? Well, yeah, I mean, so when I wrote the first book, I told everyone I knew if I ever say I'm going to write another book, please push me off a bridge because (laughs) it was the hardest thing I ever did. It was, I, I would not have ever called myself a writer Um, I had to learn how to become a good writer and I had to get lots of help from my editor and things like that. But like just the process was hard. I think it was hard partly because I did it by myself, partly because I had never written a book. So I didn't know like how much effort, how much time. And because that book was so founded in research, it was less about my opinion, more about like really what are concrete examples and things that people are really doing. I felt like I had to cite those sources. I had to really be intentional. I had to really spend a lot of time researching things so that I was delivering. I had to challenge my own assumptions and challenge my own beliefs and go back and see, well, are there studies that would disprove what I think I have found out? So it it took a lot of work and it was really hard to do. Um, I got really, really lucky on this second one. Kim and I are like two peas in a pod, yin and yang. I mean, we just we, we enjoy every moment of getting together and writing and talking. And I have heard horror stories from people who have written books with other people that it did not go well. So I'm not necessarily sure if one is better, easier than the other. I think I certainly benefited from uh, the experience of knowing how to do it the first time. At that part, I could 
you know, I did a much better job of planning and preparing and knowing what was the challenges that were coming. So, um, and I only had to write half of it. So I think uh, mm. for me, I'd, I would pick a co-author every time. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, no, it probably helped you to be able to be pushed off that cliff, knowing that somebody's there with you in tandem doing it. I, and I can tell you for sure, yeah. having probably being halfway through my book, know it's a labor of love and one that's a really unique Kind of and I use that I uh, that concept that uh, someone else. So I have a personal responsibility. I, the way I'm programmed is if someone else is expecting something from me, and I have made a promise, I've made a commitment to somebody, I will get that done, right? I don't get. I will let things go that I've promised myself, right? I haven't gone to the gym in a while. Like I, you know, I let things go. I shouldn't go to myself, but to somebody else, I will keep that commitment. And so that was a, a huge part of it. Um, you know, I, I have two book clubs that I run right now. And that's because if I have a book club, I have a group of people that I am responsible for that I say I'm going to show up and I'm going to read this book and I'm going to, I'm going to facilitate a conversation with them. I, that, I enjoy people and I enjoy, but I, I do that because I want to read the book. Otherwise the book stacks up on my, you know, my nightstand and I'll never get it done. So I think anyone out there, if you can find the, your little hack, if you can find the thing that kind of, you know, is your programming that you can connect to your work. For me, that's been so beneficial because I will get so much more done if I can pro rewire things to where it's a commitment to somebody else. Yeah, you're making that accountability. And I, I can attest to from just going through the journey of, and you mentioned it before, you weren't a writer and you had to lean on your editor. It's a, it's a place of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, I don't want to say fear, or maybe in some regards, just the unknown and something maybe that you were worried about, is it going to be good? Are people going to like it? And, right. and going through that effort of exposing yourself and some of the ideas you had, you certainly had the content. So maybe unfair for me to ask, because I know if you have a house that's got seven pillars and you take one of them down, uh, the house will come crumbling. So I'm sure intentional within your book, but is, is there one particular piece of advice that you could give to an executive as to how to ensure they leverage their company's culture? Well, if I had to pick one pillar for people to start with, I mean, usually what I tell them is evaluate the pillars and then decide which one is the where you're the weakest, right? And you should, you should work at the one that is the worst. Often people will say, well, I'm good at these five, but I have two pillars that I'm struggling with. And let's start with the easy one. And I disagree with that philosophy. I think you should go with the one that you're the worst at and get better at that because that will have the biggest gain for your organization. And it sort of gets, sort of gets, uh, it's like a, it's like a good habit, right? When, when you have a big win and people see, geez, we made a change. We really focused on this and wow, did this make a difference? Then people start looking for that kind of change everywhere. But to, to answer your question more specifically and not be a politician since we're already dealing with too much of that these days, um, if I had to pick a pillar, not knowing anything about the organization, I would say a CEO should spend as much of their time as possible on transparency, which is my first pillar. How can you be more transparent with your people, with your organization? Do you share financials? Do you share goals? Do you share, I mean, I, I'm on with my company every month telling, showing everyone our financials. We're talking about profit and loss. We're talking about why sales are up or why they're down and where we're spending money. And that exercise alone, albeit a little boring, 
gets me so many ideas. When people know more information, when they know as much as I know, or as much as I can possibly share, they have such better ideas. They're out there doing the work, right? I, I can't possibly solve every issue that comes in the door for our company, but it's hard for my people to solve those problems if they don't know what I know, they don't know the information. So they can identify we're spending a lot of money in one category. They start finding ways to save money there. I don't have to even ask them. But if they don't know where we're spending money and they don't understand where our, our goals and our, our, our principles are, it's hard for them to navigate how to help us. So I would say that's the first thing any CEO should do is be as absolutely transparent and share everything you possibly can in as many uh, mediums as you possibly can with your organization. Yeah, no, it's a great concept. And one of the main suggestions in, in our book is uh, around the idea of help, HR helping the entire organization understand their financials. You mentioned that as part of your transparency. Did you have to go through any exercise and maybe as a maturation for you as a leader in your company? Were you doing that from day one, sharing financials as an example? And when you started sharing them, did you have to educate some of your team members on you know, what, what cost yeah. of goods sold is and what's EBITDA mean and some of the other more technical terms that maybe somebody in marketing had forgotten right. that class back in college or whatever the case might be. So what we've done is, so we weren't doing that before. And we, and we really identified that as an area that we needed to grow. And so what I try to do when I'm on with the whole company is I'm giving them that 30,000 foot level uh, discussion. I'm giving them, you know, where, how are we doing? Where are we? And then maybe some identification on how things, how we're spending money, where are we seeing ups or downs? And then we allow, and if they have any question and anyone wants to raise their hand and ask something, we might dive into something from month to month that happens. But generally what that does is then trigger the teams, my, what I call my finite teams, my sales, customer service, market teams that are consistently meeting that will exist forever. They start then digesting that and they may ask for more information. They may, my research team may say, well, geez, why are we, why did we spend more last month on research? Did we have not enough staffing? Did we have an increase? You know, and so they start thinking about that stuff just by me identifying on a very broad level. Then they start digging into it on a more specific level. I definitely took that approach that we eased into it. I didn't want to just show up and go from, I'm not sharing anything to I'm now doing debit and credit and I'm doing EBITDA and I'm, and I'm just saying words that to them are just, they're Greek, right? They have no idea what I'm even talking about. So we have slowly gotten a more sophisticated, but I have found that I get my best success if I just keep it overarching for me and then let my teams come back to me and say, geez, that was interesting. Can you, can you give us more here? And we do, right? Or the, the team leader says, I, I noticed that, let's, let's dive in harder. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's some good insight. So switching gears or maybe not necessarily because culture is such a big part of, of HR. Uh, one of the main things I like to do in these conversations and, and trying to get at, like, why are we doing this in human resources? What, what, is, the, what is the purpose of, of HR? So how, how would you describe that from a theory perspective and maybe some of the things that you're doing within your organization or other companies you're helping? Well, I guess if you put it on the HR lens, there's there's always going to be two parts in my mind. And that first part is, it is definitely a risk aversion. It's definitely a, right, there's there's all these things that in all these different states that we have to do or not do. 
for our employees, right? We have to make sure they get paid. We have to follow the law. We've got to, and that's a complicated job. And so half of, or at least one part, I shouldn't say half, but one part of HR's job will always be, unless we rename it and call it something else one day, will be that part, right? It's the, it's the, the risk uh, avoidance. It's the, you know, the, the tactical stuff. But really, they have the other part that HR really should be thinking about is how do we not only help our people, help our help the companies, you know, stay out of trouble, but how do we help our people grow and how do we help them be happy? So, and and inside of that is, in my mind, if you put the, the lens of culture, is culture is the norms and it is the it's the way we get things done and it's how we meet and it's you know, and so really HR should be thinking about what are the norms here, right? What are the things that are people like us in this company do things like this, right? So they kind of still still from Seth Godin, it's, you know, how do we think about that? And so that's a really good place for HR to be looking. If, if we're seeing that our company typically is pretty, you know, pretty much doesn't like to disagree with each other, that we're pretty avoidant to have you know, open and honest discussions, then that should be an area that HR ought to be thinking about all the time, right? Because that we're just going to end up in an echo chamber and we have a lot of group thought and we're going to lose good people because they don't feel heard. Maybe we have a great organization, but we got a couple leaders that just show up and just throw up on everybody. And, and so we do okay until they show up and kind of ruin everything for us. Then maybe we need to work on that transition, right? There's always, I think there's these things that HR can be thinking about all the time. Um, and, and, and if, and if that's not enough, the, the world is always throwing things at HR. I mean, for God's sakes, 2020 has been an HR nightmare, right? I mean, the amount of the heavy lifting they've had to do this year, they all deserve a raise and an award in my opinion. So, um, but, you know, just thinking about how we can get better all the time is really that area where I think that that's where the, that's where HR can become, you know, not so worried about cost, but can be really, a, help us grow and help us be better. So as, as a CEO and you run into one of those challenges that you mentioned within your organization, you know, your, the norms that you talked about and you're trying to help them kind of work around or work through or whatever term you want to use with that challenge as the CEO, like, how are you helping them to overcome that and, and turn that, as you said, this avoidance of difficult conversations, what are you doing? Are you just assuming they're going to do everything and then all of a sudden it's all going to be better? Or are you as a CEO, how, how are you doing that in tandem with them? So we're very team-based, right? And so we have a lot of overlap on teams. We have a lot of people who lead teams that are not necessarily the most senior person. So I like to create systems that are already going to be healthy and will help me reinforce the things that are important to our organization on, on, from day to day. It, it, and so I think having a rigid hierarchy sort of causes problems. Uh, we try to undo that as much as we possibly can. Um, the second thing is as the CEO, I have to live it. I have to be a good example. Um, so I'll give you an example. I mean, we, a few years back, we instituted a policy of if you're wired, you're fired. Meaning if you're going on vacation, and you're on answering emails and you're showing up to web, you're, you're, you're going to be out of here. Like we, and we say that jokingly, but like we mean it. And so the first thing we did was institute that policy. We don't want people, when you're on vacation, I don't mean like one day or something. I mean, like you're taking a week or two weeks, you're going on family vacation. 
I want you to unplug. I want you to be totally not thinking about, about business and about your job and everything else. And so I had to do that, right? If I'm showing up, if I'm making it an exception, then I'm sending the message to everybody else that I don't really value this. And this was something that we thought as a company was really important because we saw burnout. We saw people getting, you know, overworking. And so we instituted that. The next thing I had to do was say, well, how do we, how do we reinforce this, right? How do I, as a CEO, help remove obstacles for people? So we, I, and the best thing you can do is go back and ask your team, go back and talk to people and say, why isn't this working? Or how can we make this better? Or what's the biggest challenge in making this effective? We identified the biggest challenge for people. The reason they weren't willing to turn off is that when they got back from a two week vacation, there was so much work there for them right? That they were basically working to avoid having two weeks worth of work sitting on their desk when they got back. And all that anxiety and pressure for them was there. And so we said, ah, so I figured out, well, then how do I get rid of that? Well, we made it a, you know, so some companies can do this if they have a sophisticated IT team to help them do this. I don't. So what we came up with was the first day in the first minute that you come back from your vacation, you have a Zoom call with your manager and your manager sits on the phone with you and you go into your inbox and hit control A and you hit delete and you delete all your emails, right? And you start your day at inbox zero from the day you come back from vacation. You do not have any emails to respond to, right? We asked that they put it an out of office message that says specifically, I am out until this date. I will not read your email. Here's all kinds of people you can contact if you need help right now. But if you need me specifically, you're going to have to resend your email on or after this date. So we gave them the authority and we gave them the tools and we gave them the reinforcement to say, we don't want you to have a pile of work that you have to deal with. And honestly, like, you're going to read through two weeks of emails, but really, I mean, most of that's been resolved or solved. You're just sort of catching up. So then we put in catch-up meetings, right? Someone comes back, we have them, they have meetings with their teams and they get, we call them, this is a version we have called ostrich meetings, which is help me get my head out of the sand. So 15 minute meeting, what did I miss? Get me filled in just so I know, or what do I got to do? Yes, there will be some work for you when you come back, of course, right? If you have a meaningful job, you're going to have work to do, um, especially if you're in management or things like that. But you're not going to have two weeks worth of emails. And, and so we put in those types of things and we identified those and we talked to our people over and over and over. And if we saw that someone was unsuccessful with it and we asked them why and we got it really inquisitive so we could find more systematic ways to reinforce what was important to us. That's cool. No, I appreciate that so much. It's, it's interesting. You, you talked quite a bit there about systems, right? You, you developed the system and then you, you as a CEO provided that support to HR. So if all of a sudden they put the system in place and there goes Chris on vacation, but he's checking his email 15 times and mm-hmm. calling a bunch of people. And then when he gets back complaining about how big his inbox is, then all of a sudden, like what's HR supposed to do? And I think that's a challenge for a lot of human resource professionals of getting the support from their CEO or other leadership that the things that we say we're going to do, we're going to live by those. Right. And I think that's at times a unique conflict. And I, I don't know if, if you've seen that with clients of yours or in your experience, like the point that you do that, you're basically, you might as well not even have the HR team that you do because in essence, you're undermining 
their their their, their opportunity to lead uh, in in spite of you as as a, as an owner or CEO. Yeah, and I often really worry about people overworking, and I'm I'm thinking about that because I want to retain my people. I want them to be their best. I also know that when they go on vacation and they don't think about work, they're actually going to come back fresher and be better. Like I mean, there's it's not completely altruistic. I know that this is better for them. It's better for me. It's better for the company. I mean, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody in that regard. Um, I know when I'm on vacation and not thinking about work, I have these crazy random ideas pop in my head and I just jot them down and like something cool that I never would have thought of because I didn't allow my mind to get cleared away from all the junk um, and all the things that, that go on. Uh, I, I, I do a little, have done a little bit of songwriting in my life and I don't, anyone out there has ever written a song or done anything artistic may certainly uh, understand this, but you often have to get out all of the little ideas out of your head in order to get to the real thing. Like you have all these little ideas for a lick or a song and lyric or something and you, you they get stuck in there and they kind of like block everything else. And so you have to get them out and you have to work on them and do something with them. And then the real, like the real good stuff kind of comes out of you and flows out of you. And it's like, it's the same thing for people at work. They need an opportunity to clear out the cobwebs and allow like new and good ideas and, and, and deep thinking to occur. Yeah, no, it's profound. It really is. It seems it seems like for me, my best ideas don't come during eight to five at work. It's usually like at night or on the weekend or oftentimes in the shower. It seems like I yeah. have ideas. And wait a second. Yeah. Hey, wait, <laughs> don't forget that one. I'll write I'll write it on the uh, the clear the clear window, like you know, and then try to remember it onto my phone. But yeah, that's cool. Well, maybe there's something else, another nugget, if you could go back, Chris, and when you started your career, kind of having the knowledge and experience and all the things that you've been able to achieve over the years, if you could give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? Hmm. You know, uh, I think one of the things that I decided to do uh, back in, oh, it was, it was a few years ago, but I, I decided I was going to take on this. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, uh, A Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. She's famous for, you know, writing Grey's Anatomy and all of these, you know, shows that I typically don't choose to watch, but she's an excellent writer and, and very, very uh, uh, famous for, for, you know, the work that she does in TV and movies and stuff. But she was a no person and she wrote this book about how she was missing out on all these things because she would typically not say yes to things. I mean, she was doing her work and she was a workaholic and very successful there, but like missing out on all the good things you would think about, right? Being invited to the White House and being invited to all these things. And she would say no because she was just doing her work. And so she decided for a whole year to say yes. And I kind of found that to be quite profound. And I decided for a whole year, I was going to say yes to everything. Now, you can use this trick, yes and, and yes but. Um, you can put some parameters around that. Um, you don't have to allow people to take advantage of you. Uh, and it's a pretty good idea, idea not to walk around announcing to everyone that you're gonna say yes to everything. But any conference, any speaking opportunity, any any anytime someone asks just to have a phone call with me, right? There are these things that I would maybe sort of guard myself and guard my time and you know, I would I would say yes. I remember someone asked me to come to an awards thing for them in a city two hours away. 
I would, why would, why, why would I go to that? This has nothing to do with me, but they wanted me to come and sit at their table. And I said, yes. And I went and I sat next to someone who ended up turning out to be a fantastic client for me. Right. And just these things kept happening. And so I wish that I had done that sooner. I wish I had said yes sooner to these things. Um, and uh, who knows what would have happened, right? I was sort of missing out. And I, I found the right balance, right? I, you can't sustain that forever in your entire life. I found the right balance, but I try to say yes as much as I possibly can now. And that has just been a huge, huge difference maker in my life uh, to the opportunities, to just enjoyment, to just you know networking and meeting people and, and, and feeling happy. I can relate. I can relate to that. It's, it's interesting for me a couple of years ago, I love to play golf and I wasn't playing quite enough golf to get that kind of juice that I got from it. So I made the commitment. Anytime anybody ever asked me, I would move mountains to be able to, to go and do that. And it's amazing how much more golf I was able to play and how yeah. easy it was to switch my schedule around and not be kind of kept to it. So that's great sound advice, especially saying yes to things that you like to do. Or in your example, maybe a, a new challenge or a new friend can come out of those experiences. And that that's really what right. life's all about. So, well, hey, Chris, I appreciate you being on the show. I'm going to get you out of here on this. This is my standard end of the uh, video series question. And in the podcast is if you were able to describe someone doing HR like a boss, how would you describe it? I think doing HR like a boss means you need to demand and ensure that you're at the table making strategic decisions inside the organization. You cannot be, we talked about the, that sort of two types that I broke down. You can't be spending all your time in the tactical and in the, the generalist type stuff. You need to be, if you're going to act like a boss, you got to be there with whoever the other bosses are and, and delivering uh, solutions, delivering strategic thoughts and ideas uh, and, 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 and finding ways to say yes. Right. So finding ways to say yes to the things and the ideas that are coming up and not be the, the no person or the, you know, uh, I guess the, the, the crusher of dreams, which sometimes HR can be, um, you know, how do we say yes? How do we find a way to get things done? So, yeah. That's good. No, I appreciate that. And I, I think it was, Really great how you started talking about transparency, the kind of that first pillar in, in your book um, that, that you talked about in culture. It's paramountly important to be able to do that and share as much as you can with your employees so there aren't surprises and they can contribute. And then you also talked about how HR can look at our norms and how, how we work within that and undoing, you use the term rigid hierarchies, which I think are never good within an organization, especially uh, for us small businesses, those are definitely uh, not, not not an ideal spot. And you also mentioned in your story about the systems and your support, and then eventually how how do you help getting to a yes and supporting your HR function. So really appreciate you being on the show today. So thank you to everyone for checking out today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please like, comment, subscribe, and share with a friend. And until next time, let's continue to aspire to do amazingly awesome HR. Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating and review and better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. Until next time, let's continue to aspire to do amazingly awesome HR.